Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Wednesday. Happy Hump Day. Awesome show uh, planned for you today. We have a very special in-studio guest, Tim Floyd, former college basketball coach, uh, former Chicago Bulls head coach, a member, an honorary member of the Fearless Army. He came to the uh, roll call breakfast on Saturday. That's what shocked me when he walked through the door. And Tim lives here in Nashville. And so Tim's in studio with us today. We're going to talk about uh, the NBA playoffs, but we'll also talk about Tim's career, particularly uh, a bizarre decision, a very bizarre decision to replace Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman. Yeah, those are the Bulls I want to coach. Uh, we'll get into that shortly with him, but also we'll do some Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Anthony Walker and Virgil Walker uh, will join me, and we'll talk about the FX documentary about Carl Lentz and Hillsong Church or Hillsong, New York. Uh, FX has a great documentary or a interesting documentary, The Secrets of Hillsong. It's about, I think it's four episodes. They've released two of the episodes so far. We'll have a review of that with the uh, Walker brothers. Uh, but we'll start by uh, a round of applause welcoming Tim Floyd into the studio. Coach Floyd, uh, I, I I want to talk about the current NBA playoffs. I want to talk about current NBA issues, but you know, someone of my age has to go back and talk about the, the good old days of the NBA and, and your decision to leave college basketball yeah. and, and decide in 1998, you know what? Phil Jackson, you know, he, people consider him one of the greatest coaches of all time. <laughs> Michael Jordan, you know, he's leaving. He's considered one of the, the greatest basketball player of all time. Scottie Pippen, arguably the greatest defender of all time. Dennis Rodman, in contention with the greatest rebounder, pound for pound. They all leave Chicago, and Tim Flint, yeah, that's the team I want to coach. <laughs> what was that sales pitch like? <laughs> Well, it, it really went on for 10 years. It, it went back from 1988 to 98. Jerry Krause had approached me after a game at the University of New Orleans and told me, you're going to be my next head coach, and introduced himself. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he started calling, and it went on for, like, years. And I really wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do. I was a college guy, you know, and loved it. But... Uh, Anyhow, my wife asked the same question, you know, why would you, why would you do this? And uh, because the, the model had always been find a place that's down, you know, do a little better and you're going to be able to keep your job and do a little better. Maybe you get an extension. You can stay employed till you're 60 something. <laughs> and, and, uh, and this one obviously went against the model. And uh, she asked me, she said, why, why would you do this? And, and I told her, I said, well, I want to be the next Phil, you know, and she said, "Oh, without Michael, though." Well, <laughs> and she said, "Well, you can't be the next Phil Jackson." I said, "I'm not talking about Phil Jackson." I said, oh, I said, "I'm talking about Phil Bingston," and she said, "Who's Phil Bingston?" Yes, and I said, "That's the guy that replaced Vince Lombardi, and nobody's ever heard from him." <laughs> you know? So, but and that's kind of how it worked out, you know. But uh, no regrets, uh, really. You know, kind of thankful that Jerry Reinsdorf gave me that opportunity. Uh, we still talk. 
Um, you know, most guys do get whacked. You know, uh, Coach Nurse just won a championship at Toronto, gets whacked. And so, is it Reinsdorf or Kraus that's recruiting you for ten years? Well, it was it was Jerry Kraus, Jerry Kraus, and uh, and and you know he uh, he always had the next coach in mind. The day he hired me, he had the next coach in mind, and I think in his thinking was that this is going to end at some point. You know, we're going to win our championships. And he wanted a college guy to go develop um, pros because the league was going to get younger. And the league, we were the first team to go young. Everybody was old in those days. But when they blew the team up, Garnett and Kobe had just come out. So it started right this, out of high school. Yeah, right out of high school. So it started this influx of high school guys going. And in Jerry Krause's way of thinking, the, um, the old guard NBA coaches had not had to develop guys. They'd stay in college for four years. Two years later, they'd decide if they could play or not. So he felt like we're going we're gonna to take 18-year-old guys and just try to get them better, which is what we had, 18-year-old guys. But, and, and some of them were good players and became great pros. Unfortunately, I wasn't around long enough to, to coach those guys. But, uh, but it led to a job with the, the Hornets after that and then to Southern Cal and just kept moving around. So hearing that story, I can, because I'm literally wondering, like, what is the sales pitch? And he's selling you a vision of where the NBA is going. And, and it probably does make a little sense, like, okay, you're coming straight out of high school, Kobe, Kevin Garnett, that group. And so I could see him selling the vision like, hey, development is going to be more part of the NBA. College coach saying, yes, I can, I can do that. The, the other side of the deal, though, is like you're replacing a legend in a squad that had just won six titles in eight years. Yeah. And the only two they didn't win, Michael was playing baseball. And, and all the talent was, was, was leaving. I mean, how much trepidation did you have? I, I hear you joking about your wife to some degree, yeah. but you weren't concerned? Well, you know, what actually happened, um, Jerry Krause wanted to blow the team up a couple of years earlier. Um, the year they beat Seattle before the, two, the last two titles against Utah, um, I had had a college player named Irvin Johnson same Not name magic. is Magic. Not magic. Same name yeah. is Magic, who was starting center for Seattle next to Sean Kemp and Hersey Hawkins was yep. on that team. And um, he said, we're going we're gonna to end this this year. And I want you to come up and meet our owner, Jerry Reinstorf, in Seattle. And so I went up there and walked around downtown. He said, if anybody asks you why you're here, it's just to see your old player, Irvin Johnson. So we walked around downtown and he said, what are your thoughts? On, on, on this, Jerry Reinsdorf, and I said, I think it's too early. And, and uh, I said, this team is the Beatles, and I think it needs to die its own natural death, and then, you know, maybe at that time, be ready to come in. So um, he said, would you tell Jerry Krause that? So we had a three-way at the end of that year. What year is this? This is 1996. Gotcha. Two years before it ended. So we had a three-way, and it was back and forth, and Jerry Krause wanted to, to, to go ahead and end it then and still get value in Jerry Krause's way of thinking for those players if he moved players towards the end of their careers, and he could then get draft picks 
and other players to start the rebuild. He didn't want to become the Boston Celtics, which those guys had ended their careers and there was nothing left at Boston when Rick Pitino went in. So Jerry Reinsdorf, to his credit, said, no, we're not going to do that. And we waited two more years. So indirectly, I take credit for the last two championships. (laughs) You were helping. I I didn't get a ring. You were helping them see the light. Yeah. And then the same thing happened the next year. And then um, at the end of the next season, when they beat Utah the first time, same conversation occurred. And then that led to Jerry Krause and Phil deciding before the season started what became the last dance that Phil said, you know, this would be his last year and the blow up of the team. And so it sounds like Jerry Krause just was outsmarting himself and or had some personal problem with Michael and Scotty and just wanted to move on from it. It No, I think think Jerry really wanted to win championships. In his way of thinking, he really believed that that was the time to get more players, more assets, for the next rebuild and that maybe they were at the end. Um, But Michael's will, uh, Scotty's talent, you referred to Rodman. And and, you know, even when I came in there, they had the lockout that year and the talk became Michael, we're gonna bring Michael back. um, And and if we're gonna bring Michael back, we're gonna bring the rest of them back. And uh, Michael was in a contract year, they were all in contract years, but, it just didn't. It just didn't happen. I was hopeful that I was going to have an opportunity when they started that season in February, only 52 games, to be able to coach all of those guys. But uh, it didn't it didn't work oh, out. Oh, so your original thought was that the old guard might still be there. Uh, well, it it wasn't going to be, and then because of the lockout year, it looked like maybe for 52 games that that maybe we would have them for a year, but. Uh, the decision was made, and, and Tex Winter was the old architect of the uh, triangle offense. And I think Tex, in his mind, really believed that they could win with the triangle, and Jerry Krause believed that, um, with, regardless of who you plugged into it. But as as I proved as a head coach, you needed more than the triangle, and we, we ran the triangle because that's what Jerry Krause wanted to do, but uh, it wasn't enough. You needed players in that triangle. I, I'm, I'm just... And Jerry Krause has passed, and we want to be respectful, yeah. and I don't want to put you in a tough spot, but it just sounds crazy. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. Mm-hmm. At that time, he's 32, 33, 34 years old, still playing at an MVP level. Still, Who wants to end that? Who, who wants to, I, w- I want to get out before... It, it, Everybody generally makes the mistake of, hey, let's stay a year too long. Who, who knows? It's, right. it's like, I, I don't know. It's, it's like having the greatest wife in the world. Like, you know what? Let's get a divorce before we hate each other. Well, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Uh, but, but in defense of Jerry, I don't know that they win all those championships without him from the standpoint that the players didn't really – care for Jerry. Yes, which, I know. Yeah. Which if a GM is, when you think about it, is really doing his job, they're probably not going to love you because that means you got the best end of it in the contracts. And I think Michael had a 10-year, $1.5 million a year contract. 
Pippen a 10-year, maybe $1 million a year contract. So those salaries being low allows them to go back out and get Longley and Bill Cartwright and Dennis Rodman and Steve Kerr and Buchler and Ron Harper, all those guys. And, uh, and, and so Jerry um, did a great job, but um, he, he really was ready to move on let, when let, he got to the end. Let's, you're making an excellent point. They came out, I think, in last dance, particularly as it relates to Scottie Pippen. He was not well paid. Right. He, and through his own fault, you know, they tried to actually convince him to get a better contract or, or, or whatever. And so that created some animus when Scottie Pippen finally figured out, like, hey, man, I got a bad contract. And I'm mad at the guy that, you know, gave me the contract. Jordan, just for uh, clarity or just let's make sure, Jordan throughout the 90s made, it looks like, between three and four million a year. Okay. Uh, with, which is underpaid. And then he had those two years, the last two years with the Bulls, the balloon payments of 30, 30. and $33 million. That's right. Uh, but but I, I, can, I get your point of Jerry Krause did such a good job in negotiations that it created some animus between he and the players. Uh, particularly Scottie Pippen. Um, yeah, and, and I think Phil, who, by the way, was great to me when I came in, he was out that year before he went back to the Lakers. I'd go over to his house in Bannockburn and talk to him, and um, he, he basically said, you, you got real problems coming because, you know, to win in this league, you have to have guys that are in the league five to nine years that have gone through their first contract. But Phil created this bond with his team unlike any that many have ever seen because he would help negotiate their contracts in the media and that type of thing, which led to some animosity in the terms of protocol from owner to GM to coach. Uh, it, 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 it created this, this fraction that, that probably doesn't exist in a lot of organizations, but uh, he had the players' backs, they had his back, and I think that had a lot to do with him winning. He was a terrific, terrific coach. And so Jerry also seemed to have animus with Phil Jackson, and that perhaps is because Phil so sided so strongly with the players. That's right. That's right. Yeah, which which led to some of that. What, what's your take? Where was Jerry Reinsdorf on all this? Because you know he's the owner. He should be the mediator. He should be the guy that. You know, pick, he should have picked a side. And <laughs> well, and, and but Jerry Reinsdorf was protocol owner, GM, coach. Like when I got the job, that was well established. You know, if there's an issue, talk to the GM. You guys work everything out. And uh, and Jerry was also winning championships. Jerry Reinsdorf, and uh, and and he's a winner and wanted to win championships and would overpay. For, for a team that could win a championship. But at the same time, he, he, he didn't like that, that uh, division that had gone on between GM and head coach. But that was part of Phil's brilliance, but also part of why this last dance occurred and why Phil felt like it was time to move on. I, I just, I get protocol, but when you got Michael Jordan, 
<laughs> he he breaks up the protocol. Yes, it, it, yeah. it's just like you know one of the th great things. I Mike Shashevsky uh, said this, or I read it in his book that lazy coaches come up with rule books because they don't want to make decisions. They come up with a list of rules and they just refer to that list of rules. And he said, I don't believe in rules. I believe in making decisions. And every situation likely requires a different decision. And so I, I try to avoid a rule book. Have you, have you ever thought about that as a coach? Or what do you think of that philosophy? I, I like it. I must have been lazy because I, I had some rules, you know. Maybe that's why I'm, I'm retired and he coached to 72. But, uh, uh, and, and I think that's easier when you have great, great, great talent or, 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 you know, or you're able to choose guys that come into your place or draft guys in the NBA's case. But sometimes when you're at Idaho, where I was, University of New Orleans, where I was, um, Sometimes you have a, a knucklehead or two that's a great talent that maybe if you're at Iowa State, Kansas wouldn't recruit uh, because they don't have to. And that guy maybe requires a couple rules <laughs> in order to get through the year. So it, 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 now in terms of style of play, yeah, freedom according to talent. Um, and in terms of negotiations in the NBA, uh, what's your input? You can listen. But I also think this. I think a lot of owners in the NBA make mistakes by acquiescing to a player's demands in terms of their roster, in terms of contracts, um, getting stuck with long contracts or bad contracts that you don't need in order to move it forward. And, and it ends up the player leaving and destroying franchises, which we've watched in the last yeah. 20 years. So it certainly happens a lot now, but I, I want to, because the, thing, the point I'm making about Krzyzewski, broader than the Bulls situation, I, I, I want to okay. remove kind of the Bulls from it and just have a conversation. You know, this show and what we're trying to do here is trying to teach men how to think, how to lead. And, and it, it is Krzyzewski's point is the, the point you just made, or I'll buttress your point, okay. is Mike Krzyzewski is coaching at Duke. And I said this throughout most of his career. Like, hey, man, you're coaching two parent kids. Mm -hmm. And there's one way for you to operate as opposed to some coaches that are coaching more at-risk kids. Mm -hmm. and, and so not diminishing what Mike accomplished. No way. He's, yeah. he's coaching two parent kids. Mm -hmm. Coaching Grant Hill is a lot easier than coaching Jalen Rose. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 so I think that's one of the first times that's because I used to cover the Fab Five. That may have been when I, you know, pointed out like, hey, Mike, that's great what you're doing. And and not that I was a big Steve Fisher fan at that time, but I was like, what Steve Fisher's doing is a little harder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Juwan Howard and you know, projects in Chicago. You know, miss some meals. <laughs> you know, it's a whole different deal. But. That's where I think Shashevsky is a thousand percent right in terms of you can't have a list of rules because Jalen Rose's needs are different than Grant Hill's needs. Totally agree with that. And and so this, you can't put the same rules on each one of those guys. If if 
and let's take names out of it. I'm not talking about Jalen Rose when I make these comments because none of this applies as far as I know. Right. But let's say a kid uh, grows up seeing his mom and or dad self-medicate with marijuana, and then that kid wants to self-medicate with marijuana, mm -hmm. and then you're coaching a kid who's you know, comes from a Leave it to Beaver type situation or a Cliff Huxtable Cosby type situation, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's, you may have to be a bit more lenient with the kid that grew up watching his parents smoke weed. Your, your drug rules may have to have a little bit more flexibility, and I don't think people understand that when coaches make decisions. They have so much more information than the sports media and the fans and everybody on the outside that, and that's where I kind of agree with Krzyzewski, no rules, decisions. Decisions are hard. They, they are. Um, I, I'll share with you a story along that line that I think uh, you get a kick out of. The guy I learned for, you know, we all have mentors, was a guy, Don Haskins. Yep. At what was Texas Western became the University of Texas El Paso. Texas Western beating Kentucky. Yep. I think the greatest basketball coach I had ever been around. And won for 38 years at a place that nobody grew up wanting to go. So he had some strong personalities and some other kind. But when he was hired, he was not hired to coach basketball. He said, yeah, you're going to have our basketball team. It was a football school, believe it or not. The University of Texas El Paso, which some people have referred to as the University of Texas at L intercepted Paso in the last you know, 25 years. But it was a football school in 1961. Bum Phillips was the head football coach. And, and Bum walked into Coach Haskins after, you know, he'd, he'd been there about a week and said, look, you've got to run this dorm with all my football players. They're out of control. You gotta, you gotta, he, Coach Haskins lived in there with his four small kids. And he'd go out and he'd drink beer at night, coach, and he'd come back in to the, uh, to the, to the dormitory at night about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning after shooting pool and that kind of thing. And there was an old steam locomotive on campus. And he's driving by and he sees six guys on top of the train uh, taking a leak off the, off the train. And, and coach says, okay, I'm kicking into action here. They hired me to discipline this dorm. Takes the players over the dorm packs all their suitcases up, takes them down to the bus station, and calls Bum at uh, 2.30 in the morning. And Bum says, yeah, Don, what, what the hell are you doing calling me at 2.30 in the morning? He said, hey, Bum, I got six of your football players down here at the bus station. I'm about to send them home. And he said, Don, what were they doing? He said, well, the old steam locomotive in the middle of the campus. He said they were up there at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning taking a leak off the train. He says, well, Don, who do you have down there? And he, and he rattled off the six names. And he says, Don, you and I are just getting to know each other. He says, but I got a list of guys that can pee off the train and a list of guys that can't pee off the train. And you need to take three of those six back to the dorm and told them the name. So I do get the rules thing in terms of t talent, backgrounds, um, and an often case, you know, what they can do to help your club, all that kind of thing. So, but um, there's something that goes with, uh, with giving up something of yourself too for a team uh, in terms of, of um, you know, what, what are you willing to sacrifice for a team? Be it, you know, we're not going to wear two different color shoes or we're not going to wear pantyhose when we play basketball. 
uh, what are you willing to give up to, to build team? And I think a lot of that's being lost now in the college game with uh, personal branding, uh, guys leaving immediately, et cetera. I don't want to. Is that too much information for no, you? No, no. It was, it was, <laughs> I, you're just going to take me down a path where where we're gonna we're gonna be two old guys yelling, you know, get off the lot because, and I don't want to because things that I think are are too dangerous for you to say, uh, and so you don't have to comment. On, but it's just like when I look out and see the guys with all these different hairdos, it just makes me want to change the channel, and and I, I just. Everything is what you're talking about. Per, everybody's trying to be the biggest individual they can. And it's for old people like myself, you know, a team was about conforming and to the team. And, and, and I struggled with it, particularly in college. Sure. In high school, I was the team captain and I was the leader. In college, I became someone completely different, a locker room lawyer, coaches couldn't stand me. I questioned everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, but I got it. And, and even that whole process is like, as soon as my college football career was over, it's like I had an epiphany, like, you know, these damn coaches were right. <laughs> <laughs> and it literally like happened like, I was six months after my college yeah. football career is over. Once I graduated college, yeah, I just my whole narrative on my coaches, virtually all of them, just changed on a dime. Like, man, I should have bought in more. Yeah. I should have done this or that. Oh, I, now I get what they were trying to do, and I would have had a much better college career. You know, my college career was fine, yeah, but it could have been great, yeah, if I had had the right attitude and had bought in. But it, it, it's NIL and all this other stuff is baiting people not to buy in and to be individuals. That's right. And, 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 and my guess is, without knowing your coach, but at Ball State, y'all weren't loaded with a bunch of, of draft picks. No. That they, they believe that this group of young men, we've got to focus on the rest of their lives, and, and old Jason's got to be able to get out and interview for a job and do this and that, and he's got to have a certain kind of appearance and that type of thing if I'm doing my job and think about the rest of his life, and those are probably the things that hit you later. And I think coaches are more on their heels about doing that now, uh, in fairness to them, not criticizing new age coaches, and, 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 but a lot of them have become clappers. They sit over there and you know, give them a couple pom-poms because they're, they're worried about the transfer portal. The transfer portal. That guy's leaving. I'm not going to name names because I just got to be <laughs> careful because I, I love everybody. I really do. I'm not going to, but, but there's a team that I'm very passionate about that I watch their basketball team. Mm -hmm. Every decision you could just see was like, it was a transfer portal decision. Whether or not to call a timeout or what, it was all, is this going to affect, will this kid potentially? transfer on me, every single decision. Should I yell at this guy? Should I correct what he did? Blah, blah, blah. It might impact this kid hopping into the portal or leave. And, and it, it's, it's maddening, but I feel sympathetic for the coaches. Yeah. Because we, we, we've done this, 
And then, Tim, I, I do think, particularly with you being retired now and living here with me in Nashville, I do think I'm going to put you in a tough spot and, and ask you a, a <laughs> difficult question that I think you can handle, though. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the racial dynamics that are going on in college sports with all this woke stuff, I think it's, I, I, I sit and watch coaches and I go, I don't know how you guys do it. I'm most sympathetic towards white coaches because everything can be spun in a racial way. And, and I sit there and think about a coach is sitting there trying to share the values that he believes in and that he thinks has made him successful and he thinks will make the kid successful in life. Mm -hmm. But as a white coach, you now have to sit there and second guess, is this appropriate for a black kid? Are my values appropriate for a black kid? And it's like for a coach, all I have are my values. And the, and the coach is sitting there thinking, my values have no race attached to them. There's values that I think will make you successful. And so I think a lot of white coaches, and not to eliminate, I think a lot of black coaches are afraid yeah. to share their values, particularly in this, there's so much hostility towards religious values, and so many coaches come from a religious background, it's, it's just hard to share them. You, you don't know what landmine you're potentially gonna step on. Yeah, and, and I think those landmines are, are growing um, for instance, I was told this by a coach last week that, they're, they're, okay, you can transfer once now and, and be immediately eligible, but there's guys that are trying to transfer to go to their third school now, but they put two stipulations in, one, racism, two, mental health that if those things go on, you can transfer again. And coach called me last week and said that a friend of his, Division I coach, and I won't mention any names, um, the kid wants to transfer out, Jason, and go to his third school, but he doesn't want to sit out, so the third school is telling him, just claim racism. These are adults talking to young people and, and influencing, the, you know, lying about something. So the kid claimed racism, went to his athletic director and said, uh, they asked him what, what was racism. He said, well, my coach uh, served fried chicken after games and that that was racism. That's not good for the kid. It's, 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 it sounds like heaven to me, but go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, you know, <laughs> well yeah, and I, I love it too, you know, and, and, but, but I mean, it, it, that, there, there's so many issues that are going on, and, and I feel for all these guys, and I do think it's, it's, it's harder for coaches um, given all the different things that you can offend people with right now, and, and you just have to be very careful. There was a coach, I believe it, I don't want to say the school because I might be wrong, but I know there was a coach that read Bible verses to a kid and the kid said it was racist. Mm. That he, he, you know, because he's been so gassed up on the uh, Christianity is white supremacy and blah, 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 and how dare this coach read me a Bible verse. And, and, and the verse 
I can and I'm sure my audience will know the school or remember the story, but the verse had something to do with slavery in some capacity or whatever. And and but they just use it to smear this coach. And it, it, it's I just I'm 56 and I played college football in the mid and late 80s. And I just couldn't imagine a coach having a second thought about making some scriptural reference and, and thinking that that was going to offend somebody. That's right. You know, uh, a good poor, our best players, I wish I had been one of them, but you know, I'm sitting there thinking of Tim Walton. These guys read the Bible every day, before yeah. practice, after practice. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not saying these guys were all angels, but, you know, reading the Bible was a big deal to it. <laughs> and uh, and now it, it, I think about prayer before games, after games, just they're detaching sports from religion. I just yesterday show, Tim, I talked a lot of, about uh, the history of the YMCA. And uh, I don't even know people realize that the YMCA stands for Young Men's Christian Association. It's now just the Y. Mm -hmm. But the Y, the YMCA, is what organized sports. Mm -hmm. Starting in the mid-1800s here, it's what organized. And we're pushing all of that out of sports. Mm -hmm. It's it's mind-blowing to me. It's mind-blowing to me, too. And... um, I'll share a story with you about this wokeness and how far it's traveled and the problems with it. And and going back to your religion and prayer, and there's somebody in that HR department at that school that's going to try to get that coach fired over that. Yeah. Unless you have strong leadership and a president that's willing to stand up, then you've got real problems as a coach because you can you can interpret things any way you want to interpret it, and a lot of it's just opinion. I, but I went through this at my latest, my last job at El Paso. We were really proud. We we started a father-son basketball camp back in the '70s at the University of Texas El Paso. I think it was one of the very first in the country, and did it on Father's Day weekend, Friday, Saturday. Dads would come in. Uh, spend the night in the dorm with their kid, go through all the, the actions and plays and the participation. And uh, we'd watch Hoosiers or Pistol, uh, the movies at night, and ice cream supper, all that, great stuff. Sunday, mothers would come in, the daughters would come in, watch the dads with their sons out there on the, on the court and dismiss them. Father's Day, uh, that, that June, June Sunday. And uh, my last year at, at UTEP, I got a call from the vice president and said, Tim, we're going to have to change the name of your father-son camp to the guardian-son camp. And I said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And he said, well, it's going to offend some people, and we just want to have the right language out there. I said, are you telling me fathers aren't important, this and that? We went back and forth to the point where I just said, you know what? Uh, we're just no longer going to have that camp anymore. We're just not going to have it, and and disbanded it. And it was a it was actually my most fun weekend of the year because I got to know the dads. You just watched all this bonding with their sons. These hardworking, um, you know, fathers that are out there doing their job, trying to spend time with their kids. But it's just gone too far. I, I want to 
buttress your point. I got an email yesterday mm -hmm. making the point, and please help me find this email. <laughs> it's because I want to get it in Hallmark. Oh, yeah, here we go. Guy named Kyle emailed it. Jason enjoyed your show. Former Kansas City guy, now in Texas. I got this from Hallmark. They spam me with emails, but they're worried about triggering Father's Day cards. And so, the Hallmarks, and I, we understand that Father's Day can be difficult for many, which is why we'd like to give you the choice to opt out of this year's Father's Day emails and text messages. Imagine that, imagine that. And it, it's, it's, it's just, it, throw me a break, you know? Uh, and, and it's just, and, and you and I both know, um, you had teammates, I coached for many, many years. It's the one void that we've really got going on right now is, is just fathers being there, being around these kids, giving them that other voice, giving them some direction, just a little bit more discipline. Moms have got a lot on them, these, these single moms, and these kids really, really need it. And it's, um, it's crippling to, to and, and I'm not talking black, Hispanic, I'm talking all, all races. Well, because one, also, even the fathers that are around, regardless of color, they're being kind of trained to walk on eggshells and to, hey, don't be too tough. You know, there's all, all the, and again, this is the old man in me. <laughs> I don't understand all the anxiety stuff. I, I don't, and I'm sure anxiety is an issue. And we have Royce White that comes on the show, a regular contributor, and he talks about the mental health issue. And so I, I do to some degree understand it, but I, I just, I tell the story often on this show. Uh, my, one of my best friends and longest friends in life was an assistant football coach at my high school. At this point, we weren't friends. He was just an assistant coach at my high school. Mm -hmm. And one of our first engagements were first day in pads as a sophomore. My high school at that time was only 10 through 12. Freshmen went to the junior high. First time in padded practice as a varsity football player my sophomore year, Tony Burchett called me the P word out in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, all it did from that moment, from the moment he called me out, it just made me a better player. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, this man just called me up. It'll mm -hmm. never happen again. And mm -hmm. I destroyed, it was why I was a great high school player. I literally never forgot it. I'm, it's been 40 years later, I still remember it. I was like, ain't nobody ever gonna call me a pe out in front mm -hmm. of my boys and all this. Blah, blah. It, it, but it's like now, you know, obviously a guy like Bobby Knight could never exist. Mm -hmm. uh, in this current environment. And I just, I just know so many coaches understand but have to hold back, and so many fathers understand. It takes iron to sharpen iron, that building a man is a rough process. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to allow some of that roughness and abrasiveness to happen uh, if we want to produce better men. We can't raise men and women the exact same way and expect 
to get good results or because what we end up getting are just emotional, easy to trigger men. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat, but I just, you're still friends with a lot of active coaches. Yeah. And you've seen. And old players. Yeah. You know, there's some of these old players now are in the, your age. Yes. And, and that we still talk to, that guys were, you know, came from not a lot and have done well as a result of that structure. And I know you're not endorsing a coach using the P word or, or calling somebody a SOB or anything like that. But your point, your point is, <laughs> your point is you know, requiring and demanding and getting somebody out of their comfort zone, uh, not seeking their approval. Uh, and once you do that, then you get somebody out of the comfort zone, then it allows them to go and accomplish what they want to accomplish. And sometimes that requires some, some strength. And, and, and I think there are a lot of people that are trying to be friends right now. And I think most young people need exactly what you're saying. They need, they need a little bit of, of demands. I'll give you another. I'm sure at some point you met Rick Majerus. Yes. Uh, so Rick Majerus coached at Ball State for two years when I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he built us a great basketball team in those Great coach. Yeah, great. Ba- and, and incredibly abrasive, obviously, back during that time. Incredible. Mm-hmm. These guys, I'm still friends with, you know, all those, because that... Paris McCurdy. Paris McCurdy is one of my best friends. Kid? Curtis Kid, Curtis obviously. Kid, yeah. I remember those guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had Billy Butts, who transferred in from Michigan. Uh, we had a great team. Dick Hunsaker, the year after Majerus left, took us to the Sweet 16, and we nearly beat UNLV, the great UNLV team. But these guys so swear by Rick Majerus. They absolutely, you know, Rick has passed now, but they loved, adored Rick Majerus. And he was tough. Incredibly tough. Incredibly tough, and so it, it's one of my funny moments. Rick Majerus uh, came and spoke at a journalism class that I was taking at Ball State my senior year. The 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 professor was the top sports writer in Muncie, a guy named Ron Lamasters. He had Majerus come in as a guest speaker in the class, and Majerus is up there talking, and he just nonchalantly, this has to be. What Olympic team did John Thompson coach? 1988? Yeah, the 1988 that Olympic team. That would be about right, yeah. Yeah, and so this is in 19, this is probably in 1989, the year after we lost. And Rick Majerus just nonchalantly <laughs> says, uh, you know we lost the Olympics because John Thompson's a racist. And he went, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm not to, I'm telling you this story because it triggered me. Because again, in college, I was a completely different person, and I was definitely like triggered me. And me and we and Mick Bridger started yelling and screaming at each other in the class. And but that was that. We just moved on. Yeah. And like everybody else on on that campus, I liked Rick Majerus. Yeah. And you know, all of my buddies that were on the basketball team loved Rick Majerus. But we could have that kind of disagreement. And everybody just move on and me not think that Rick Majerus is the worst person in the world. I disagreed with him on that. Even yeah. know, John Thompson, I don't think, picked the right team. But it, anyway, it, it just, I just miss those days where 
men could have conflict, disagree without us jumping to the conclusion that this is the worst person in the world and they must be destroyed and I must go to the media and... Yeah, and, and you know, Rick Majerus, you talked about how tough he was. And, and look, we got coaches now that, that still are college. Um, I assume there's a pro guy or two, you know, in the, in the NBA that, that still demand. Um, but people, and this goes to parenting as well, I've always believed do best when they know what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, how they're supposed to do it, and you're consistent with what you're putting in, and then you create this identity, and, and I'm not talking about boundaries, but, but an identity that you can trust yourself and you can kind of move forward, and um, Rick was one of those guys, and, and, and people used to be able to go at each other, and you just walk away and you respect and you call them back up and say, hey, look, maybe I went too far, maybe you know, this or that, but you get together, but now, it's, it's so polarized and, and so different, and somebody's head's gonna roll and, and, and go after it. But uh, that's why I respect what you're doing, because I, I think, Jason, why I became a huge fan is you just talk common sense, and we've lost a lot of common sense. I have no choice. I graduated Ball State with a 2.3. <laughs> I could give you the young lady's name who's responsible for about 1.3 of that. Uh, <laughs> but they may revoke my diploma. Yeah. Uh, so common sense is all I got. Uh, I do want to talk about the NBA playoffs, and we might as well start with uh, LeBron James and whether or not you think, he'll, you, you think he's serious about retiring? Well, I, I think he can smell it. You know, it's out there somewhere. You know, he watches all his pals who were in that class leave. Um, he, he's uh, been the face of the league for now probably 15 of the 20 years he's been in the league and uh, probably wants to watch his son play this year right there in Los Angeles. Maybe he can do both with an NBA schedule. I don't know. Um, I know I wouldn't want to be the coach of... of his son, <laughs> with, with LeBron <laughs> second-guessing what I'm doing on the court and why'd you run this inbounds play? Why'd you pull him out of the game? Maybe he won't be that way. Let the guy go do it. But, uh, but he's, uh, I, I, th I think he can see the end. Um, and I, I do think he probably wants to play with his son if his son wants to play with him. Because oftentimes kids will say, hey, look, you get out of the way, it's my turn. And, and maybe his son's good enough. I haven't seen his son play. Maybe he's not good enough, but I'm, I'm sure he'll get a shot. Oh, he's definitely going to get a shot. So if you had to bet, if someone forced you to bet LeBron plays next season or he sits? I say he plays. I say he sits. Do you? Yeah. I, I think he's going to sit out for one year and micromanage Bronny's <laughs> uh Freshman season at USC. Good luck, Enfield. <laughs> and then he's going to auction himself off to the team willing to draft Bronny. And hmm. it'll be a title contending team. He'll be 40 then. Yeah, yeah. But he just scored 40 in his last game. Okay. He, even at 40, and then he'll be selling like, I'm refreshed. I set out for a year. My body feels better than it did. The last time I played, he signs with some title contending team, plays 50, 60 games for them, and then really tries to turn it on in the playoffs. 
sons on the roster, whether he deserves it or not. And it's just like I Giannis Antetokounmpo, yeah. his brother's on the Bucks roster and has been for years. His, you know, his brother, not much better than me. From what I yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, I've, I've been involved in those kind of package deals through the, through the years, uh, and that would make sense for some struggling franchise to, to do that. Oh, I think I it's t- a title contender would do it. I, I LeBron won't play for a struggling team. I took Little Romeo. Uh, the the childhood rapper yeah. at USC. I remember that to, to get uh, Demar Derozan, uh, and they were That's best friends. And they oh. both they both played for Master P, who used to hang out in our gym at the University of New Orleans. And I shouldn't say I took little Romeo. Ro- Romeo, I love you. Your game probably didn't match Demar's, but we loved having you around <laughs> the, the squad. He was a great guy. Little Romeo was a great guy. How long did he stay? Um, well, I left after his first year. Oh, yeah. And he was really, really great. Um, yeah, we had we had Demar Derozan, we had Nikola Vucevic, um, we, uh, Taj Gibson. Okay, we had good players. They should have fired me. We should have won it all. <laughs> those guys. But 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 anyhow. Uh, but but uh, I, I can remember. We we pull up to play Blake Griffin, in Oklahoma, and there's. 400 girls lined up outside the, the hotel coming in. You know, I, I felt like we were the old Bulls teams waiting to see <laughs> Jordan. And they were all there to see Romeo. He'd walk across camp. <laughs> Nobody cared about those other guys. But, uh, but one practice uh, we had, he, he was sitting over there on the sideline. I went over and sat behind me. He had on a beautiful sweatsuit. And I said, Rome, um, where'd you get that sweatsuit? I like that. He said, Coach, you want one? I said, what are you talking about? He said, uh, I got my own clothing line. He said, "What size you wear? I'll have it there tomorrow." I never had a player like that, but he was—he uh, was a lot of fun. Um, How was Master P to deal with? Master P was great. He was great. He—he—he he, he, he thought he could play for us at the University of New Orleans back in the days. He grew up in New Orleans. He was out there hanging around with uh, one of our our players. So you knew Master P from back in the day? Yeah, I knew him back when I was, you know, thirty-two. And, um, and then he was then out in L.A. We're in L.A. He's coaching the AAU team with DeMar, so we're paying attention. So when you were 32, were you going, make him say, uh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we like you. We like you. We don't think you're quite ready yet, Master P. But, but, he, oh. uh, but he, he wasn't really Master P then. He was a oh. young guy trying to, trying to get there. And, uh, but he was, um, he was great to us. He was great, and so was Rome. They both you know, one of his older kids, actually, I think, I don't, did he make it a year here? He signed to play here at Tennessee State in Nashville. That's his younger kid. Yeah, his younger kid, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, Romeo's brother, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, younger child. Signed to play, and then, but, but I don't know if he ever. He I think he played. Yeah, he transferred someplace else beforehand. Mm-hmm. But we were looking forward to having Master P here in Nashville. Uh, huh, so that's it. Yeah. So, You've you've had the high profile dad, but Master P was perfectly fine. Oh, he was cool. He he was great. He was great. Um, yeah, we we had a lot of fun with Romeo because he he came in. I, I heard all kinds of numbers. He's worth fifty million to seventy five million. Had his picture on a bag of potato chips, and the whole thing. And and uh, we we had five of the top ten players in the country for a visit. Uh, USC's playing Ohio State in football, one and two. And so we're going to bring these guys in, take them to Rose Bowl, the whole, whole deal, uh, uh, the Coliseum. And uh, we, we're having dinner, 
and uh, we got five student hosts to take these five players out, you know, and these are great players uh, that, that we got in there. Rome says, Coach, which one of those guys do you really, really want? And I said, that one right there. He said, I got him. Don't worry about it. It's done. And, and so he calls, he got a driver's Mercedes, pulls up. It's got the guy with the hat on, comes in and says, come on, you're going with me tonight. And I, I'm about to give him, you know, you can give him $20 to take him out. <laughs> he says, what's this for? And, and you know, normally the, the student host is getting it in pocket and not spending a thing on the player. He said, what's this for? And I said, well, you know, take the guy out tonight. He said, coach, keep your money, man. I, I, I got the money. <laughs> so it was, it was fun. But, but it goes back to your point. LeBron and his son, I could see, uh, I could see your, your, your thing happening. Yeah, the, the, they, they're going to do it a year in college, mm -hmm. and, and then they'll take their act to the NBA. And LeBron will shoot a documentary about his last season playing with his son and hope that it ends in a championship. I, I could see the C Cleveland Cavaliers perhaps doing it. I could see the L.A. Clippers perhaps doing it, uh, but it'll be some team that has enough talent around it that, that'll think that if we just add LeBron and he's any good at all, if he can give us 20 points a game in the playoffs, that'll get us a title. That's what I think happens to LeBron James. There you go. Nikola Jokic, two-time MVP, making his first NBA Finals. I don't know how to categorize him and, and, and how, what I should think about him and and I, I make I, I'm, I'm doing something I don't like to do my first thought is to compare him to a white player Bill Walton mm -hmm. that's as close as I can get he's he you know I think of Kevin McHale but he's nothing like Kevin McHale uh, I, I, I don't maybe he's just one of a kind and we have, because, you know, Bill Walton certainly wouldn't be shooting three-pointers if they were even allowed back then. Mm -hmm. Who is mm. Nikola Jokic? Mm. I don't have a, that comparison, and I don't. Um, you know, you hear about guys like Sabonis back in the day, the old man Sabonis, not the new one. Yeah. It was supposed to have been that, but your listeners aren't, they can't relate with that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't see him play a lot. I think he's in his own class. I really believe he's different because, you know, and, and you did the, hate to compare him with white guy thing, but, I mean, he can't jump as high, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and he doesn't run extraordinarily fast. Uh, they thought he was a, a liability defensively early in his career, but I, I just think it's... I don't even see great low post moves. But but I, I saw him early in his career, and they've kind of got him at that elbow and the three-point line all the time now, but he can. He can. He can do that as well. Um, they just don't utilize him there much. Maybe with certain matchups they will, but uh, I just think he's extraordinarily special because big, big guy that can pass the ball really is a difference maker. That can they just make plays for everybody else that has the ability to make a goal. He's really special. I'm not saying this to diminish him. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it to try to understand him. Yeah. Is he, could he do what he does now in the 1980s and 90s NBA? Interesting. Is, is it just the game has changed and the floor is so wide open and, and the three-point thing is so important? 
and and the contact has been so limited. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to diminish him, yeah. but I just wonder what what would he be in the 1980s? Jeff Rulin? I don't know. Rick Mahorn? I don't. I don't. I don't. But again, none of those guys. The passing ability. But but would those passing lanes even be available in the 80s? Yeah, um, I think that's a great great point because you'd have had, you mentioned Mahorn. Those guys would have just tried to just crush him and beat him up, and there'd been Bill Lambeer. That's a comparison. Bill Lambeer. Yeah, yeah. But the, Lambeer couldn't pass it like this guy. Those guys couldn't pass it. Um, I, I think he would have been a great player then. Still do. Still do. Um, because of his ability to pass the ball in, in addition to, to um, just his cerebral next play mentality. Um, he's, he's different. He's different. But, but I don't think that he maybe would have been who we're talking about now. I, I go, all, all the young guys, as you know, because you, you're an older guy, yeah. I'll say, well, you know, the NBA, I don't want to talk about Al Cinder, I don't want to talk about Wilt, those guys, because they didn't have any centers in those days. That's all they had was centers in those days, right? I mean, they, they yes. you know, Bob Lanier, Everything, Nate Thurman, yes. Wes Unsel, and centers were so much better. But I think he plays in any era. He's, I think he's that special. Jimmy Butler mm-hmm. uh, looks like he's on the verge of taking the Heat to another NBA Finals. Who's, who do we compare him to? Wow. I say, I say Ron Harper had Ron Harper not hurt his leg. Uh, you know, Ron Harper played those years with the Bulls basically on one leg. Uh, you probably remember him as the great player at Miami of Ohio and early in his career with the Clippers. Absolutely. I think he would have been considered a Hall of Famer had he not gotten hurt. That's my recall on him. Um, And and, uh, I I think he was a two-way player that could really, really go score about the same size and could score from the same areas. That, I, I like that comparison People won't get the comparison because all they really remember about Ron Harper are the years with the Bulls. Great defender, great asset for Jordan and Pippen. They don't know the guy that, you know, I was in college when he was at Miami of Ohio. I was in the middle. You remember that guy? Oh, yeah. And I remember, you know, him with the Clippers and the score and all that. So it will sound like a shot because People just don't, they just remember as a complimentary player right. uh, w- with the Chicago Bulls, but, but it's certainly not a shot. No, no, it's a compliment. He was, he was a great one before the injury. And the, the thing that I think Jimmy Butler is benefiting from is he's in the absolute right organization. The, 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 the Miami Heat, because of Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra mm-hmm. and what they... The Heat, because of Pat Wright, they're still coaching and developing and playing like it's 1983. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's bringing out the best in Jimmy Butler. The same way I, I think the Heat organization took LeBron to another level and made him uh, a, a great student of the game, a, a, a 
an approach. Not, I'm not saying that LeBron had no work ethic, but Pat Riley will take your work ethic to a new level. He'll, right. he'll really define for you. Oh, no, you think you know what hard work is? Mm-hmm. Pat Riley really defined that whole Heat organization. I, I think, and I was someone that was very uh, critical and skeptical of Eric Spolstra when he took on LeBron and the whole Heat thing. But this guy is, has learned from the master, Pat Riley, and has picked up right where Pat Riley left off. And I give Pat credit for doing the same thing that really what's, what's happened at um, New England and football. Um, when, when you have a GM, an owner, and really what happened at San Antonio through the years, they're, they're having their down cycle right now. Okay, but Pat has been willing to say, hey, we've got the right coach. You guys need to adhere to what we're doing because Eric Spolster is not going anywhere. He's like my son. I believe that he can coach. And it allows you, I think at that point, to go demand of a team. We're Okay, people are practicing two days out of every 12. We're going to go four out of every 12, and we're also going to have a shoot-around every day, and we're going to get better at whatever coverage. But I, I give the organization credit for, for Eric because they identified somebody, they gave him an opportunity to grow with his job, and because of all of his successes, I think he'll be there as long as he wants. But he is a special coach, and they do have a different culture. I hate that word, culture. It's used too much with athletics, I think, but it is um, an organization that I think totally gets it. And they found the right players to go in there. How about their undrafted players? That's Struess. Um, who's the guy from Santa Barbara, uh, the, the guard that uh, Hero? twisted his ankle last night? No, Hero's Kentucky. Um, kid that hurt his ankle late in the game last night. Um, it was a guard about 6'3", undrafted player. My point is undrafted players, they've continually had them. Um, Say that again. I'm about to look at it. Gabe Vincent. Gabe Vincent, yeah, yeah. another another undrafted player. Um, and and that's a whole key, this, this whole scouting thing. And, and Jimmy has found the right team. And going back to that, you know, Gar, Gar Foreman that was with the Bulls, and yes, they fired me, but they drafted him 28th. They drafted Taj Gibson 29th. And finding those guys in today's NBA, you've got to have a bench. And that's the one thing that worries me a little bit about Denver. They clearly are great, but they're only playing like six or seven guys, Jason, going into this, the finals. The thing I like about the Heat, if, if they advance, which I think they will, yeah. the reason why I think they have a chance is I, I think Bam is a guy that can actually guard Jokic. Uh, and there's very few guys that I think can go or even have a willingness. Anthony Davis probably could have guarded him, but he's just not willing to. Uh, <laughs> where Bam is more, will be more than willing. Yeah. And so that's going to be an interesting matchup. Who who, who do you favor Heat uh, Nuggets NBA Finals? I, I, th- I still like Denver. I still like Denver just because um, they've got – there, there's never any noise with their team. I don't like teams with noise. Um, 
we've watched Miami go on this run where things are going well. I've seen Jimmy in situations where things weren't going well, where he and Spolster got into it on the sideline late, late March or April. Um, I don't think that will happen in the finals. But, you know, we, we see a lot of noise on a lot of teams, but there's none out of Denver. They're, they're, those guys, Jamal Murray, um, I, I love their, their humility. Um, just the fact that they, they share the ball, skill level. Porter is a terrific player. Um, they seem really, really um, all in one place right now. And uh, I, I do think they're an injury away, though, from, from not getting it done if something happens just because they don't have the depth. This, the, the, the lack of noise, you just hit on probably another one of Jokic's intangible strengths is that when you have a Magic Johnson or Larry Bird share the ball type player as your best player and the MVP, it, 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 it does quiet things down. When, when, when uh, your best player is a pleaser, a teammate pleaser, mm -hmm. it, it, it makes everybody else get along. And so you don't care if he's got 30 and wins back-to-back -back MVPs. That guy's moving the ball constantly. Yeah. It's, it's kind of what I th Magic and, and Bird brought to the table. Because uh, when I think of the Celtics and the Lakers, and again, just dating ourselves here, but I just I don't remember a lot of friction or noise. Never. Around those teams. They didn't have them. And isn't it great when your best player is also, you know, carries the message of the organization and the coach, Michael, Reggie Miller, you know, Stockton, Malone, um, you know, Kevin Garnett, those guys that were, uh, were just magic. This is who we are. This is what we're doing. They hold others accountable. And I get that sense from, from Jokic and, and, and Murray. I'm going to, and this is not said to diminish, it's just me thinking out loud as I'm sitting here thinking about your, your lack of noise deal and, and about the best player being a ball share. Think about Golden State, and I love Steph Curry. He's awesome. Mm -hmm. but he's a scorer first, and I know Draymond's a, the, the catalyst for a lot of their noise, but I wonder if, if they had a different leader would Draymond feel as emboldened to create all the noise and conflict and chaos that he creates if, if they had a different, more dominant, domineering type leader? Would Draymond be a little bit scared to do the foolishness that hurts their team? And I think you go back to Michael and Dennis. Dennis, prior to coming to Chicago, a lot of, yes. a lot of noise at San Antonio and and, and Detroit at the end, he had some color, you know, the pink hair and the green hair and all that, but it wasn't necessarily on the floor. It was, I, I thought just all about- beating up teammates. Michael beat up the teammates, not, not Dennis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think, I, to your point, I think Michael was that guy yeah. with Dennis, and that, that it felt like they could do that. And, uh, and that, that's, you know, I don't, I don't know uh, Steph or Steve Kerr, at all, love Clay Thompson and, and what he represents and who he's about. But uh, Draymond, you know, a couple times there has, has stepped out to where it, it, it hurt him in, in, in games. And uh, 
hurt their whole season. They said this year, he admits it, this year yeah, the punch yeah. to Jordan Poole ruined the whole season. Yeah. And I, I love his unselfishness and who he is, but, but yeah, the, you got to have that guy that can, can control that locker room. So, Tim, what do you do on a day-to-day other than, you know, probably talk basketball with all your friends, you're a fishing guy. How'd you get here to Nashville? Well, my daughter, uh, Shannon Hillenmeyer, lives in, in Nashville with her three little girls and her husband, Hunter Hillenmeyer. And after we traveled around the country for all these years, my wife said, I'm making this call. Yeah, you've, you've, and I said, okay, where are we going? And so we came to Tennessee and I said, okay. You asked me what I do. Um, yesterday I walked around Walmart for about an hour and a half. <laughs> Plant daffodils. Uh, I fish a little bit, play golf, see the grandkids, and um, just at peace with everything. You know, that's the probably the best part about not coaching is, you know, you just kind of stay angry about something all the time in the college game. You can be um, either recruiting or your administration or or. Uh, Knucklehead player. Some guy in the media with the Kansas yeah. City Star, you know, wrote something <laughs> bad about you or whatever. So you stay, stay a little chapped, you know, from time to time. And now, you, you know, you just kind of seek peace every day and get involved where you need to get involved. If, if somebody asks you to do something, you, you, you do it. But it's, it's a good time in life and, and really enjoying it. And it's, it's been a great move. Any of your former assistants had great success? Yeah, yeah, we've had we've had a few along the way. Um, Larry Eustacey was a national coach of the year, uh, a Ball State assistant during our heyday. Yeah, there there you Larry. go. You know yeah. you know Larry. Larry and Paris McCurdy are yeah. two peas in a pod. Did a great job. I was really I've been so proud of so many of them, and uh, even former managers uh, that are involved in front offices in the NBA that we had along the way. Uh, Kermit Davis, Randy Bennett out at St. Mary's. Um, I had, I guess, 12 guys become Division I head coaches and um, a couple of NBA general managers that, that worked with me and assistant GMs and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, um, it's been a fun ride. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of pleasure now in watching those guys work. Well, Tim, thank you so much uh, for coming by. I'm gonna ask again for you to come by. I don't know when. Uh, it may be. It may be next. Or the, we're gonna get a week off before the NBA Finals. But I hope you, you know, don't duck my calls. And if if we need, because this was awesome. Now I could sit here and reminisce about the good old days and listen to stories about the good old day and you know talk about what's going on now. This was awesome for me. And so I just thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And what is the name of the the the, the day I went to and, and, and met you? Roll call? Roll call. Yeah. I, I, anybody's watching, if you have a chance to go to one of these roll calls, go. I just showed up, loved it. <laughs> it's led to this. Uh, I, I think there's a, a, a large group of us in this country that appreciate your candor. Uh, you're speaking common sense. Uh, to this country, and um, I'm one of your biggest fans. You know what's funny about that is I guarantee you, if you met my college head coach, Paul Shadell, he would tell you, like, 
and I don't know if Paul ever watches the show or has ever read anything I wrote, but he would be so shocked. Like, I am, I can't, I'm not the opposite of what I was then, but I am the opposite of what I was then. <laughs> I'm sure those coaches like, this guy's going to be a headache for people for the rest of his life. And to some degree, they're right. But they didn't think I would be sitting on TV or anywhere preaching their values. But I, I have to admit, that's one, you know, as soon as I got old enough, I was like, dang, my dad was right. His coaches were right. Holy cow. What an idiot I was. And it's the truth. I was an idiot. Uh, thank God. Thank God. God was patient with me. Thank you so much. I'm going to throw a curveball here uh, to the audience because Tim was so great. We're going to uh, end the show here. And you're gonna, Tennessee Harmony's gonna be great, but you're gonna have to wait for it until tomorrow. Anthony and Virgil are gonna come on and we'll have our Tennessee Harmony conversation, but uh, we just went, you know, an hour and 15 minutes with Tim here and it was awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll play some tomorrow and we'll see you tomorrow. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be.